This is Tom Ferrario, Ted Phyllis protege, and Marley Woods and beyond for Dead Hand Radio. First of all, welcome to Dead Hand Radio. That's the official uh, demarcation for the start of the episode. We are not live. This is pre-recorded. But, okay. um, but yeah, I, I, for one, am not familiar with Ted Phillips' work. Um, and you were the first person that even gave me a hint that, w- that uh, you know, there was anything going on in Marley Woods. So I'd really like to get into the origins because, like you said, not a lot of the the newer people to the field of ufology and paranormal activity are familiar with that whole episode. And uh, so if we could give like a pretty basic groundwork to start from and then go from there, I think it'll be an interesting conversation. Okay, we'll do that. And uh, basically, Alan Hynek was an academic that the government brought in on Project Blue Book, which I'm sure many of your viewers are aware of Blue Book. And uh, Ted Phillips became his protege. He was his assistant and became a lifelong friend with Alan. And uh, when Alan was sent into cases, uh, they met one of their top cases was the Lonnie Zamora's case in Socorro, New Mexico. And uh, that's where they had one of their first really working relationships and uh, for Blue Book. And Ted was, whenever Alan was, had, was out, he had a little bit of health issues through the years. And whenever he had prior commitments, he would bring, Ted would step in for him. So uh, Ted Phillips, which was his protege, did a body of work with Alan. And Alan at that point thought that Ted should do, should specialize in physical trace cases. So, and Ted was an engineer. So he did the, he did the grunt work. He did the soil sampling, the background work, all the documentation for Alan. So he has, to this date, he has over 3000 documented physical trace cases to his credit. So that I will tell you, just touches a little bit of Ted. And Ted went worldwide. Uh, Alan sent Ted, and this isn't widely known. I've just brought this out since Ted's passing, uh, which Ted passed away last year, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, he, he was in the Soviet Union. He was in oh, just Africa. He was in Vietnam, which is a very interesting case that I broke on that. Uh, but he he got a body of work out of that. And he actually overseas, he documented almost 1,500 uh, physical trace cases. And when I say physical trace case, what I'm, what I'm talking about here is he'd go out and uh, actually, this was a day, unfortunately, not like now, 
of more of the structured craft, the, the classic saucer, uh, a, a saucer structured craft would come down, put down three indentations and Ted would do the science. He'd go out there with a soil, an instrument that would determine the compaction of the soil. And contrary to popular belief, the, the, and one of the things that Ted determined to weed out some of the, the fake cases in the field was these things have a great tremendous amount of weight to them. And he was getting readings in a, in a three, three pods that were put down landing gear that were put down typically around three to six inches. He would get a total tonnage of approaching 20,000 pounds. So, so for, uh, for like a 20 or 30 foot craft, you, you're getting a, a weight of around 20 to 30,000 30, pounds? Yes, yes. So that, that tells you the nature of the beast there, what these things are capable of. The, actually, the science behind them. And uh, it went into other realms that after years working with Alan, that Ted and Alan had formed a, uh, that a belief in, a, oh, more than a belief, they had formed absolutely documentation to prove. And this is, a lot of ufologists aren't going to like this, but uh, they totally believe and know that these things are dimensional, hyperdimensional. They're not interplanetary. They have capabilities that ex far exceed our physics and you know, uh, Ted, I might add another close associate with Ted, which comes into play with Marley Woods. I don't know if you've heard of the name, of, I'm sure you have now with Phenomena, the Jacques Vallée. He actually came out and spent time with us and worked with us at Marley Woods, as he had in Skinwalker Ranch. So the physics that they put together, uh, it's a great body of work that I can only tell you, I could be here days and not go into everything that, that Ted had, was a part of. And um, then we can get into Marley Woods, if you like. Yes, I, I would like to ask a few more questions about Ted Phillips and then get into your background just a little bit and talk about how you and he came, uh, came to work together. Before I get into that, um, you said a couple of things that really struck a chord. And one of those was that, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you say that Ted and Alan Hynek were convinced that these craft are hyperdimensional versus interplanetary? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Could you go into that a little bit? The nature of the craft and uh, there's a primer I'm actually going to be releasing. That's a combination of, Alan and Ted's work and uh, Jacques Vallée's work and others, Ray, a gentleman named Ray Stanford, I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. He's a good friend of mine. He actually was in the uh, Socorro, New Mexico case again. He was there with Ted and Alan and uh, he ran Project Starlight way years ago. Uh, he's a very genius self inventor and an engineer and uh, raised quite a guy. He wrote a, a, several books and he's a part-time paleontologist, but uh, they have all come to the conclusion that these things are absolutely dimensional uh, because they, 
defy the law of physics as we know them. And you know, what that gets into is, uh, you hear so many descriptions of these things, the same description from different people at, in the same actually area. And there's such a wide variety of descriptions. And they have proved that these things, when they come interdimensionally, that depending on your viewpoint, they're very directional. One person will see one thing, another person will see another thing. They exhibit, they the way they can transgress this is they have, they create an envelope through their technology. That's why you hear these craft coming, the lately released films of these things, the military release, why they go many times the speed of sound, don't make a sonic boom. They're seen to go in the water at mock, you know, past the speed of sound and come right out of the water, not losing any momentum, no, no speed. So, this is all a hyperdimensional aspect that they they have and the occupants in them when they're in this envelope it, the physics in our side our dimension doesn't apply to what's in this envelope in the craft and it's it's they had several instances where they proved this with technology this also evades any type of monitoring equipment, you know, it evades radar uh, at times and they can virtually be seen on radar or visually when they want to. And if they don't want to be, you're not going to see them. So uh, I've got a primer of 10 things I'm going to release the work of Ted and Allen's and uh, different people in the field that explains just virtually everything that aspect of ufology and explains a lot of the the how could this happen? So that in a nutshell is what, why they deem this thing hyperdimensional. And now this gets into the entities themselves. And I will tell you that the capability, why things are seen and um, one person can see something, the other person won't see. And we experienced that a lot of times out in Marley Woods ourselves between us. So, uh, I can document a lot of their work myself through visually being there and experiencing it. So there, there is a growing consensus that these things may be inhabiting our oceans. What do you say to those people? Uh, is, is it a different phenomenon that is inhabiting the oceans or is it the same it's it's absolutely the same we feel and uh i will say just touching in a little bit of my background um i was in mufon for several years the founder walt andrus and john schusler the other founder is a good friend of mine but walt convinced me through some of my cases i did when i was a young young boy i researched in my area to be a section director. And I went on to become friends with a state section, state director of MUFON in Missouri, Bruce Woodman, and uh, who he turned it over to a very capable gal who's had named Debbie Ziegelmeyer. And she's had a couple shows on the History Channel and Discovery. And, uh, but Debbie and I founded the MUFON dive team for them. And we, 
we had plans, we dove on some things, but we very much know and feel that this is all related. It's the same phenomena. At, at times, they don't always use their technology. They want to have a place that's comfortable to turn it off, have, a, have more, more or less a port, uh, and do what they wish, you know, and, and with the technology they have, when you see their technology and it's what they can do, it, you know, depth doesn't apply to them at all, you know, and compression. Uh, but I will tell you that we believe it's all, yes, it's all the same entity and uh, same phenomena. And Interesting. Okay. That goes into grounds, even with uh, the cryptid beans, and we found in Marley, and we all believe it's all part of the same phenomena. I've heard differing viewpoints on that one. My own opinion, I think that it is the same. Um, I've had people challenge me on that, but I am no expert by any means. Um, I'm not even, I, I don't even consider myself a researcher. I'm just a curious person. And happily, I've been able to connect with people like yourself who know a heck of a lot more about this than I do. And I've had some of my questions answered. But every question that I have answered raises about 10 to 100,000 more questions. Right. And to us, too, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good, though, because, you know, curiosity, um, curiosity is a strong uh, incentive to, to, to look into this. Um, but I think ultimately what everybody's looking for is the answer to what, not only what are these craft and who's controlling them, but where are they coming from and why are they here? So th these are the answers that, you know, the, the big overlying uh, answers that I'm looking for. And I don't know that I'll ever have those answered. Uh, you know, the best we can do is, is Ted was a great researcher with like Alan and uh, documentation is everything. And, and Ted did reams of, and, you know, back in that day, it was all, he kept journals, you know, there was no technology that computers. And even the early days when I hooked up with Ted, there wasn't very much computer power, uh, which would have aided us greatly. And, uh, but Ted's main goal was looking for answers and Marley too. And uh, I will tell you that the first introduction that Ted had to Marley Woods, um, Ted didn't put a lot of stock in it at first until uh, he got to talk with the ranchers that owned Marley Woods because they started relaying to him. And this was the beautiful part about it. They had no knowledge of UFOs, anything at all and which really aided the research greatly because Ted knew there wasn't any, you know, anything that crossed over that they could have picked up on or tried to bring into the equation that he knew everything was virgin material from them with no input. So when they started relaying to him, uh, such as the, he picked up on the light balls, the unseen force and things of that matter, it rang a bell to him and he got out there right away then after he a couple reports when he spoke with the ranchers 
and he was always afraid it would it would turn into some some let's say really dramatic cases that he experienced overseas that that really turned out bad for the participants but people always ask why did ted virtually spend the rest of his life at marley investigating it at he, him and I and others in our team spent a lot of, we've seen them, each other more than we've seen our own family members for some years. And, uh, but he really got it, was worried that this would evolve into some of the high strangeness that got really bad for some of the people. And uh, I, I will tell you, we all had personal effects. I myself included had physical effects from this uh, that are long lasting to this day. And uh, even some of the, the ranch owners out there. And, and you're talking, when I say Marley Woods, I could get into that a little bit, the description, whenever you're ready on that. Yes, and I'm kind of holding off on that because that's, the, that's gonna be the bulk of our conversation. So I, I would like to just postpone that just for a couple more minutes. And um, I, I wanna give, listeners an opportunity to get to know you a little bit um and i i i'm sure that you've already told your story and your background but if you could just summarize it i, I know you sent me a really brief bio um but if you could just summarize it and how you and ted became friends and started working together uh that'll give um people an understanding of who you are and why you're bringing this story forward. Right. Okay. I'd be glad to. Uh, and I was assistant straight state director with Bruce Whitman from Missouri MUFON. And uh, Bruce brought me in. We did a couple conferences and I, I caught Ted's couple of his lectures and I respected his body of work and him so great. And uh, Ted was one of the best lecturers he interjected, he had dry humor. He was just, he, he was one of the best out there. And, and, you know, Stanton Freeman even respected Ted so much that Stanton always thought Ted was, Stan was about the best there was and, and he respected Ted. But, but at one of the conferences back before 2000, I approached Ted and I told him how much I respected his work and, uh, I said, if there's anything I can ever do to help you, Ted, I'd love to be part of it and work with you. Not in a million years thinking he would respond to me, you know. I thought he'd just give me a pat on the head and send me off. And he said, well, wh what do you do, Tom? And I said, well, I'm electrician by trade. I was an engineer, machinist, a dive master. And uh, however that I filled in for an electrical engineer I worked with and I said, whatever I can do to help you, you know, I'd be glad to. And he, he said, well, he said, what are you doing next week? <laughs> and I said, I said, are you serious? And he said, well, heck yes, I'm serious. He said, he said, you come out and meet me at such and such place and show me what you got and we'll go from there. So I did what he said and uh, it became a long, we met at a location and Marley is a, you know, for a long time in the lecture circuit, Ted wouldn't even give you what state it was in. And he did narrow it down to Missouri, which is partially true. Um, but uh, 
And I will add at this point that Marley Woods is a totally fictitious name, so don't go trying to look it up. It was there to done that way to protect the ranchers and their anonymity. And but I started going out with Ted at that point, and we formed a relationship. And uh, he would get me to run wires, put up security cameras, and that sort of thing. And uh, just a little insight of what we did when I remember one time I climbed a 30, 30 foot rickety old windmill, mounting cameras, arranging them, pointing their, their view. And I was pretty proud of myself. I knew where the activity was. And I, Ted was in the, and the ranchers actually built Ted a two story office out there that we worked out in. It was our habitat we stayed in. And on one occasion, Ted was out on the deck and he come out and I was pretty proud of myself. I thought I had arranged the cameras in the right location. And uh, Ted yelled out, came out and he said, well, a little to the left, Tom. And I arranged the camera and, and Ted said, now a little to the right. And I'd say, well, well, Ted, that's where I, I started from. And Ted said, well, I know that, Tom. He said, I just wanted to see what was over there right now. So, <laughs> but, uh, he was always constantly, you know, his mind was constantly at work trying to figure this out. And, uh, and then we started going out. We, 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 Ted formed a team and we brought in three other people, which worked down to two other people, which was Debbie Ziegelmeyer and Adam Johnson, which is, he has his own production company in St. Louis. He filmed some shows for the PBS channel there and he does documentaries and Adam's a great guy. And, uh, and then we have another gentleman in our team, Rodney Dillard. And, uh, but we've, we all got formed a close bond and worked well with each other. And we knew what Ted wanted to accomplish. And we always had that goal in mind. And the sad part was we had to do a lecture circuit. Ted, that's how we brought in the revenue and in the process of that, we hooked up with some people that gave us funding and uh, which never usually worked out that Ted had to do it the scientific way and they had other goals. So that usually was always short lived, <laughs> but, but that's just a short synopsis of what, how I got with Ted and what we did. Okay. Good. Well, that'll that it gives a, a little bit more insight into your background. Uh, tells us how you and Ted came to work together, and it sounds like the bulk of the work that you guys did together <clears throat> happened over here at this uh, fic fictional named location, real location, fictional name uh, for secrecy purposes and privacy purposes, uh, called Marley Woods somewhere in Missouri, um, not too far from St. Louis, I'm, I'm guessing. And uh, <laughs> is it still secret, the location of the place? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. And uh, um, I will add, just interject there, that we had worked on a couple other cases with, uh, we did a, and actually we won we were invited to review a case in aztec new mexico there was a crash site there years ago and we were up there investigating this and stan freeman took part of that timothy good and some other 
ufologist. And, uh, and we did, we went back and did a re-examination of the Socorro case with Ted and some others. So we did, uh, we did a little thing at Chaco Canyon and some of the culture there and UFO related information. So we did do a few other things, but I will say Marley was, Ted was so preoccupied and we all were with Marley. That took the bulk of our time. Uh, now, before we get into the work that you guys did out of Marley Woods, would you just explain kind of the, the first of all, what was going on out there and, and how did Ted become aware of it? Bef before okay. you talk about what you guys found out there, what are some of the anomalous uh, incidents that were occurring and how did you guys come to know about them? Okay, the, the property owners were looking for answers. They, and I will say at this point that this goes back in, in this area. We've traced it back several generations, well over a hundred years. We couldn't trace it back in Native Americans because, and now this sounds, this actually, you can read a lot more into this than it sounds. We could not find any Native American participants or culture in this area, such as arrowheads and petroglyphs or anything of that nature. And which in around this area, several miles, it's like anywhere in Missouri, you're gonna find arrowheads, you're gonna find Native American culture. This area, there never has been that found. So, so did they avoid this area? Is that, does that say something in itself? We think it actually does. Now, the land property owners got together and they were looking for answers and they got, the only place they could find that was vaguely interested in this was MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. So they contacted that in Missouri and got a hold of Bruce Whitteman and Bruce, was a good friend of Ted Phillips anyway. And he asked Ted, he said as a favor, and Ted dabbled, he was in and out doing work for MUFON throughout the years. And Ted said at first, well, I'm busy, I don't know. And Bruce sent him some of the reports and when he read, got into the details, when he seen the details were exactly what he was confronting overseas, he immediately took the case and went out and met the property owners and that's how he got brought into Marley Woods. What were the details of the uh, occurrences going on out there? Okay. Yes. Now this, this rot runs a gambit of uh, high strangeness. I will start out with the light balls, of course. Uh, you have white light balls, various sizes. You have yellow, green, ambers we call them, which can take the form of not actually a light bulb, but any particular shape or whatever they wish to become. And then the ones you really got to look out for are the red light bulbs. They exhibit the most energy or the, and they're the, the culprits that have done the most damage overseas. And when you get into a, a scenario when you start seeing red light bulbs or people reporting them, you know it's, it's going to go bad. And, um, but other than that, we have the unseen force and the unseen force is things such as that knocks down steel gates with log chains. It breaks off steel hinge pins, uh, knocks the gates flat on the ground, knocks over trees. Uh, just, it's unimaginable, moves 
vehicles that are that are parked without engines, locked in gear, runs them through people's garage doors. Uh, the unseen force is a very capable high energy force, uh, which at time when we, we thought there'd been reports of uh, also in conjunction with animals being levitated, they'd find animals in treetops out there, literally torn apart. So um, then that's the unseen force. Then you get into other phenomena, the, the light beams, which is what the ranchers and people in the area had reported for years out there, which are light beams that come down where you can never see the source. They sweep the fields as if they're looking for something. They, the, the locals call them that they're always hunting. Uh, at times it has actually come down on individuals, the ranchers. We had experiences ourselves where we were caught in the light beams. Uh, and it's not a pleasant experience, which I'll go into later. That's the one that usually gives us side effects. We have uh, tracks. Uh, tracks that go out on ice that are 13 inches in diameter, three toe tracks that go out on the ice into a pond and terminate in the center of the pond. Um, but we have tracks like that on land. We have, of course, the cryptids, all various forms of animal-like things out there reported by people that live there. And um, and we have physical trace cases. We have hair. We have 17 inch long white, pure white hair found on barbed wire fences. We, we've taken and we've sit, Ted sent in for DNA work and uh, microscopy, which have come back no known match, which is interesting. We have, we've poured, we've got tracks. We've, we've cast out there, these creatures. Um, it just goes into, and then we have vortexes that uh, like a, a strong wind, and it's a little hard to describe, where you'll see a tree uh, just being whipped around like it's in a vortex, like a tornado, and uh, things underneath it being picked up. And you know, on a windless day, stormless day, Ted's experienced that himself several times. Uh, various forms of lights out there, and uh, so it just runs the gambit of just high strangeness that uh, you just can't imagine in one location. And, uh, and then of course, there's what's deemed the, the portals that we actually think we've located three areas where there were portals out there uh, where things come in and out of. So- That's a lot. That's, uh, that's in a nutshell what we dealt with. <laughs> Were there any reports of craft in the area, physical craft? Yes, we have. There's usually two types of structured craft that have been seen there. We have on a rare occasion had reports of the typical saucer-like craft, structured craft, uh, silver, 30 foot in diameter, which is typical, very rare. That's the one Ted's liked it. Like he liked to deal with those because he could get physical trace from them. Uh, we have several reports, landowners going to their property at night or dusk and seeing what was a, a football size length, cylindrical black, jet black 
tubular craft with a row of yellow lit backlit windows on the bottom of these craft. And one rare instant we have a report of light bulbs entering and coming out of these craft. So uh, there are, we do have structured craft reports out there. They're very rare though, in compared to everything else that goes on. And, um, but we do have those. The, uh, the activity you're describing, uh, where, well, it, it varies somewhat in, in detail. It's, it's similar to what's going on at Skinwalker Ranch. Does that sound uh, accurate to you? It's absolutely accurate. And I will tell you that, uh, you know, Robert Bigelow, you may be familiar with that name. I can release the name now and tell you that we did work with him for a brief period. Uh, and you know, Jacques Vallée and was out, he spent a good part of time at Skinwalker and Jacques spent time with us at, he was such a good friend of Ted's he had worked with. And I will tell you that, that Jacques, after, before he left on one occasion, told us, he said that, he said, Ted, I believe there's a, a higher rate or possibility of cases of high strangeness at Marley than at Skinwalker. Because virtually everything that happened at Skinwalker, we have re reports of that at Marley. And I mean, there's some strange stuff. Now, I don't want to jump ahead of you, but I do want to, one thought I want people to take away. Do I believe that all the cryptids, the, the strange entities that have been seen at Marley, that there's a living breeding population of these things at Marley? I, we absolutely have formed a conclusion there isn't. But when these things are there, and we believe there again, they come through dimensionally, they're as real and exhibit physical traces as we are. But when they're not there, you could walk through this property uh, and hand to hand with a thousand men and you're not going to find anything. So that's a difficulty you have to work with also. Uh, the, um, the, the scientific studies that you guys uh, have conducted <clears throat> at Marley Woods, is it, is it still ongoing? Or has that ceased? It's it's ceased as as far. I mean, we get we get data back from the ranchers. In fact, two nights ago, I I got called three times in one day, and the last time was at nine o'clock. And one of the ranchers apologized to me. He said, "Tom, I hate to bother you again, but you're not going to believe what's happening." And I said, "I said don't." Don't hesitate for a moment. Don't, you're not bothering me. I said, thank you so much. I, I said, you know us anytime, day and night, you want to talk, call me. So we're getting data like that, that I'm logging. Are we out there physically constantly anymore? No, we're not. And I will tell you that it's basically due to this damn virus. Um, the ranchers have given me a total authority to do what I want out there. They, they wish anytime I want to go out there, they, they'd love it. Uh, they would like their wishes are that I would not bring a whole lot of people in the area right now with the virus. And I won't betray that trust. 
because they're all up in age now and uh you know that's the last thing i want to do and i will tell you we've had several production companies wanting to get in there uh our team shot a couple episodes way back you remember ufo hunters that was on tv with bill burns and uh, yeah I, I do vaguely remember that that show it was short-lived wasn't it like one season well, no, actually, it, it filmed several seasons. Unfortunately, we filmed three episodes, one aired, <laughs> and the other two episodes uh, remain never seen when they terminated their show. And I hope that wasn't from us. I don't think so. But, <laughs> uh, but there's so many people would like to get in and do things. But like I say, right now, with this, with this damn virus, uh, I am working at, at this moment. We're working on trying to get a um, cellular network. Ted, one of Ted's goals was back then, and this was when Wi-Fi first came into existence. We couldn't get internet connection out there. They, the people out there are so remote, we're lucky to have telephones. Uh, so there is capabilities now. He wanted to have a network of cameras out there that we could pull up. That was his dream from wherever location in the ranchers, anybody we, and we wanted to make that known on our, on our website at that time we had. And, um, but we're working at that now through, we want to put up a series of cellular cam trail cams. And there's a way to do this now, because even, even cellular connection out there is really terrible. So the next best thing is there's a way to do self cellular trail cams through a sat phone. <laughs> now, I can't express to you how costly that is. So I can imagine. We want to we build up a network of 15 cameras to start. So you're looking at a considerable investment there. But that is our ultimate goal to be there, you know, even because this stuff reads your weakness. When you're out there, you, when you least expect it after hours and hours in the field in 10 degrees, you start breaking up camp and you get your equipment broke down. And uh, that's why we learned that we always tried to have one individual have cameras on. But uh, when you least expected this stuff would happen, it, there is an intelligence we dealt with out there. And uh, I can go into more than that later. But uh, so that's our main goal right now. So the activity out there is continuing. Has the um, has the level of the activity or the intensity of the activity changed at all, or does it continue just as much as it always has? As of the last year, it has increased. There was a null period, but I will tell you the call I had the other night, uh, nine o'clock. Uh, they had one of the largest white light ball sightings events that they had ever seen at Marley. And they actually thought it was the moon at first. And uh, the resident, and they're getting up there in age and uh, they got out there, the caretaker at one of the place called them to get out there. They no longer live at the site. Uh, they live in a nearby town. And uh, so they traveled out there and they experienced it. They seen it, they took some photos which the property owner is getting to me. And I will, by the way, I, I do on my Facebook page, I, since we lost our website, we had to take it down through individuals we were working with that didn't, that required that. 
It's the worst thing we could have done for our project. Uh, but we, I basically used the Marley Woods, Ted Phillips Marley Woods Research Center group page I have. I put the latest photos, information on that reports and on my personal web Facebook page is more or less a uh, devoted to this work. So you can go there at any time and I will post the latest reports and photos that way. Uh, besides different radio appearances, I made one last night and, uh, but with Tim Beckley and, um, but as soon as I get these photos back, I will post them and, uh, and I do have some software. We do some of the, I have most of the software we used out there and some of the equipment. Uh, we try to, I try to do analysis. I've got a couple people that help me. And um, so we try to get out what's, what's current out there. But yes, the activity is in the last year and January, February, February and March seem to be peak periods in Marley all through recorded history. And, uh, and unlike you, most people in paranormal, and I will say, when I grouped this in paranormal, uh, this is a, a, a sore spot that was with Ted and Alan, and that they differed over this for years. And Ted come to the realization that Alan was so far ahead of his hit, everybody, and he was right. And Ted come to believe this, absolutely, that paranormal activity, ufology, it's all of the same animal. It's all interdimensional and it all comes from the same source. Now that's, I know that'll step on a lot of people's toes, but if I have to put my money on anybody's expertise, I'll go with Ted and Alan and uh, several in the field. Uh, so well, on that, on that note, I will not disagree with you because this is a, I've had this conversation with several people. And like I said, I've had pushback from a lot of people within the community, but this oh, yeah. is, this is one of the areas where I feel strongly that all of these things, all of these activities, including ghosts, I, I feel like they're all somehow interrelated. Yes. And, you know, I can't express to you back when I started with MUFON and Bruce Whitteman assigned me to an air force captain that trained me and I thought I knew a little bit about it from, I come from a rural town and I, I was one through some family personal experience. I was always interested in it. I had one experience myself as a young boy. So I got to be known in a small town. You get to be known as somebody that would listen and not ridicule. So I, whenever anybody after that has an, a sighting or an experience, they, they go to you. So, then when I got hooked up with MUFON and got some training after Bruce assigned me to a gentleman named Jim's Cross, uh, Air Force captain, and trained me a lot of the photo analysis work and how to actually get out and interview people. Uh, the reality of it there, it's just, you know, at that point, if you'd have told me whenever I heard about Bigfoot sightings or, you know, cryptids associated with the UFO, I would actually get, I'd get mad. I'd, I'd have a resistance to it and I'd go like, no, I'd throw it out. You know, no, I'm not even gonna spend time with it. Little did I know what a turnaround I would come just as Ted did, that it's all one and the same animal, you know? And 
So it's it's been a learning experience for me, not a pleasant one at times. <laughs> but I would I would lay money down and bet that it's been an interesting journey. Oh yeah, yeah that that it has been uh, more so than I ever could have dreamed. And I I had a gentleman, well Walt Andrus, who was the founder of Mufon told me one time when I, I related, I did some cases that I had covered in my area in Missouri and a couple cases, he informed me that, that what really picked, he picked up on was, and I had no knowledge of this at the time, I, that Blue Book had actually gotten involved with. And I did, you know, I did not know this at all. And uh, so that's why he kind of pushed me into getting into MUFON and, uh, but, uh, it has been a ride, I will tell you. And my b greatest dream was hooking up with Ted, you know, and I learned so much from that man that, you know, you just can't buy an education like that. Uh, you, you, what you are doing by bringing his work to the forefront for a new generation is an honorable thing. And I, I, re I commend you for that. And I appreciate you taking uh, the, uh, I appreciate that what you're doing. Um, well, I look at it as an honor. I really do to, to get Ted's work out there and who he was and what he was. And you can catch a few of his lectures on YouTube. And I recommend strongly, don't listen to me. If you listen to five minutes of Ted Phillips when he was in his prime, I am so far inadequate to even mention his name. Believe me, it's <laughs> he was the best out there. He could hold an audience and inform an audience in ways that I, I seen him be, go out for a, be brought on for a two hour lecture and I've seen him go on for four hours and the people were begging him not to leave. So, uh, but I do urge people to go on YouTube and look up Ted Phillips and try to watch a couple of his, at LA did a great one there at LA MUFON conference and there's some others and, uh, and that's not even getting into his body of work that he did on a project called Moonshaft that I urge you look up Moonshaft on YouTube. And that's a project we were getting funding. Ted had been there twice. And uh, that's a whole story and a night in itself though, I'll tell you. <laughs> Maybe we could revisit that another time. Uh, um, but I, I am curious, what part of the country are you from originally? Did you originate? I'm from Missouri. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is that where you live now? Yes. Yes. I'm, yeah, I grew up in a small rural town uh, called Herman, Missouri. It's, uh, I wasn't born there. I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, at the age of three, we, my parents moved to Herman and actually started a restaurant and motel business in a little town back in the 60s. So, uh, that's and I grew up in Herman, which is my hometown, and it's a great little town. Uh, but and with so much, I might add, back then, and of course, I'm, I'm as I'm beginning to find out, there really there were there was so much UFO activity throughout the nation. Actually, when you get into cases and dig, I have yet to find a state where there hasn't been a lot of activity back in the '60s and '70s, really, and. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'd have family members that come and speak to me about things. 
incredible cases. And uh, I've got the paperwork. I always wanted to publish a book on the rural cases out here. You, find, I mean, because some of them, and I, like I said, I spoke with Walt Andrus about, and I had no idea that Blue Book had been involved but uh, just tremendous cases, uh, you know, even one abduction case that happened, you know, a couple miles from where I live now. Uh, uh, you but, know what, uh, right there is something that we did not talk about, but it's an anomaly that is experienced in many cases uh, is missing time. Have you guys had any kind of missing time out on the, the Marley Woods? You know, site? we haven't, we haven't had that. And, uh, we, we did have one witness that had a son that actually a son, it was in a case where the son had in gone out and I will say he was a, a, a very special person um, the, to this family. And uh, it wasn't a, we actually, Ted deemed that it would, could have been an abduction, most likely was where he had gone out the door and this was a, there was snow around. He went out barefoot and his, there again, his tracks terminated about 15 foot from the front door. He was gone three days. <laughs> the family was, they had the sheriff out there. They searched, they couldn't find anything. Three days later, the kid comes walking in the door as he left that morning and doesn't know anything's wrong. How old was he? <laughs> And uh, he was 13 years old. Wow. And he doesn't have any recollection of what happened. He, to his point of view, he walked out, turned around, came back. There was no time, you know, discrepancy there. So uh, that's the only case of missing time that we have in that area. Uh, but there was so much more out there. Uh, but it happens, you know. It, and we dealt with that, MUFONs dealt with that in Missouri quite a bit, you know, abductions. And uh, and uh, and I will add that Debbie Ziegelmeyer is the, the state director now for MUFON. And she has an assistant, Margie Kay, in Kansas City. If anybody has any cases, they can connect, connect with MUFON and, and report to them. Um, but, you know, it's just... But we've had just, uh, and you can't believe the cases of high strangeness we've had out there with people. Uh, These, um, the, the, you're calling them light bulb balls. And I, I, I've heard people refer to a similar uh, anomaly as orbs. Would you say they're the same thing or are these different? They, they really are the same thing. Ted didn't like the terminology orb because it kind of denoted the spiritualistic effect. You know, when you people, the connotations with orb, where when Ted wanted, he wanted to study something on a scientific ground, he called it what he's seen. He's seen a light ball. That's what he put it down as. He didn't want to go into that terminology because it, it just led to so many other avenues, you know, not saying that it isn't. But just he wanted to go precisely with what he's seen. Fair so enough. that's why yeah. we had our orders to call them light balls. So okay. <laughs> the um, the a lot of the activity that you've described also 
uh, resonates with a case that is described by the Bledsoe family, Chris Bledsoe and his family. Uh, have you talked with them or looked into that case at all to see if there's any correlation? Uh, no, we really hadn't, you know, uh, not to say that there hasn't been, I know that the mutual UFO network has people that had, but, uh, but basically all our time and Ted's time in the States lately, you know, he, Ted worked at Delphos. I don't know if you're familiar with the Delphos case not, in Kansas. I'm not That's, familiar with that one. Look, look, I might add, look that up on the internet. On, there's a, I think there's a couple pieces on YouTube about that. Or Can you spell that? Pardon? Can you spell uh, that? Delphos, D-E-L-P-H-O-S, I believe. And that's in Kansas. And that is an incredible case of a circular craft landing and a farm, bot, farm boy went out, left a, a ring of uh, illuminated soil for several days. People went out there and touched this ring, uh, developed a, a rash and uh, a numbing of their extremities and uh, for several days. In fact, the, the mother of the boy got a, a, had a numbness in her one hand that she never did completely leave. And uh, the soil there, which I will add that Ted, Ted was working with Alan Hynek on that. And uh, that was one that Ted had gotten over 35 pounds of soil samples. Now, if you know the soil sampling method, that denotes how much sampling that Ted did to get 35 pounds of soil that they sent to analysis at labs. And um, the, the soil, the, and here again, Ted was always drawing from his knowledge. When we would find things in Morley, he would directly relate to this. It would document their pedigree. So one of the things that he, Ted found out there, Delfo's case, was the soil all became in this ring hydrophobic, which that, of course, you know, that means that resistance to absorb water. And I will tell you that Ted had these samples for over 30 years and he could pull them out and they were just as hydrophobic as the day he, he got these samples. And we did come across that in soil analysis in Marley that in a couple of the uh, agroglyphs, the soil at the bottom would be hydrophobic. And that's the only anomaly we could really associate with the agroglyphs. And there again, as in light balls, the terminology, Ted did not like to call what some people would refer to as crop circles. Ted, in the old days, if it was associated with a disc or saucer, that the old timers called them saucer nests, or they were put down by, they were called agroglyphs. So, that was a, a big no-no with us. We could not call him. He did not like the terminology crop circle. Uh, I, I, I really like that term, agroglyphs, and that's the first time I've ever heard it. Uh, okay. Was it um, was it used to describe what what we know as uh, crop circles, which are these geometric, very beautiful, artistic sh shapes and forms in in um, and, and certain all around the world, basically, is that is that what the agroglyphs is? 
is describing? That, the terminology fits that. We've never experienced those at okay. Marley or Ted never experienced that personally. His were always the, the agriglyphs or saucer nests laid down in he'd always, the thing that he would go for was you had to have an eyewitness sighting of a craft coming up out of the saucer nest to put it in conjunction with a craft. Um, so often the agroglyphs are in conjunction they, as they're termed, you know, they're put in the same basket with UFOs. And unless you would physically, you'd have eyewitness testimony that that the craft was in the area that made this, you could never say that it was a saucer nest, you know, or UFO oriented. So, um, but now that's not to say, I, I believe a lot of them are real, the agroglyphs, that it's just a shape put down in the, you know, whether it be whatever type of plant life it is, you know, out there, uh, which is various things, but, uh, but ours and what Ted always investigated were the circular agroglyphs. And that's what we dealt with in Marley. You alluded to some of the negative physical effects that uh, people studying the Marley uh, area have encountered. Uh, do you want to get into that a little bit now? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I sure can if you're ready for it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, the property owners have for years experienced when they've been near are in what's termed the light beams. They've some have experienced a tingling sensation on their arms and hands, a condition called the, what the, one of the local doctors there, he called the condition touchy scalp. And that's basically where your scalp, your hair gets so sore and it feels like a bad sunburn. You can't even touch your hair, which I experienced that myself. Uh, and then it goes into the range where Ted has actually experienced. He, on a couple occasions where him and I were in a vehicle and we were in a light beam. And I hate to draw the analogy to close encounters of the third kind. And uh, of course, I don't know how many people watch that movie now. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Okay. One of my favorite movies. The scene with the light beam when he's in the truck, in the service truck. And well, we experienced that directly ourselves only with, I, all I can tell you is it was three times the intensity as what that portrayed to a degree where you could not even see in the vehicle. It was so illuminated. And Ted and I jumped out of the vehicle instinctively and we seen the light retract off the vehicle. And which is really strange when you're speaking about light because you never experienced this. I haven't and don't know how you would, would do this, but we've seen a distinct cutoff of the light beam as it retracted into a circular. And the best way I can describe it is the old type of aperture and the old cameras that have that twisting motion. We've seen this light retract into that and it was it was gone. Now that night specifically uh, when we got back to the office site three, Ted got violently ill and vomited. 
at the time, I did not do that. This, and we think we're dealing a lot in the area with microwave radiation, um, but I did not have that effect. In hindsight, I wished I would have had that effect. It affects everyone differently. And my, and this is all documented as high strangeness and Ted for years didn't like to speak about this when we would lecture because he didn't, he believed that the investigation, the people, the researchers should never become part of the research, you know. So he gave us an open hand, we could speak about it, but he always led us to a place where when we were determining if we were going to talk about it, he, he'd ask us if we really wanted to do that. And he didn't want things focusing on us. So we didn't really speak about it a lot. And, but I had a condition, I had the same thing that the, ran, the ranchers had. I had, I went in, got treated, I was home a month and I uh, went in and they put me on strong painkillers. They thought at first it was shingles. They tested me, it wasn't shingles. They said it wasn't, it was like a bad sunburn, but they just come to the conclusion, well, it could have been some form of radiation. And in, I will tell you in a month from that date, my hair went from being dark brown to being white to blonde to is what it is today. And uh, now that's not the worst of it, what I experienced because we, we had in our team, we had four experiences with a light beam. I was with Ted on one occasion. I was with Adam Johnson on one occasion. Another researcher and I was out in the field and I was with one of the property owners. So the common factor is I was involved in, the, in exposed four times directly. Now, I don't know if that a result of that, I think the compilation of that, but I started having a couple years later having vision problems and I went in, I couldn't see very well out of my left eye at all. I uh, went into an eye doctor that sent me to a specialist. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the condition called a macular cyst. Uh, not, not, no, not to, I don't, I, I kind of understand what that is, a, a cyst on the sort eye. Sort of like cataracts, but deeper in the eye. Okay. And uh, it's usually associated with age great age. Uh, of course, at the time, I wasn't of great age. And they really, even in age, they don't know what causes this condition. It's a cyst that grows in the eye behind the lens. And uh, the surgery for that removal and to set you in the right path is it can come out extremely good, or it can come out, you can lose eyesight mostly in that eye. I, I did have one surgery. I had a macular cyst removed from my left eye. They left it in the right eye because it wasn't that bad. It's still there. I did develop cataracts from that. And I had the cataracts removed also. And to this day, my vision, it's always changing glasses. At days, I don't need glasses at all. Other days, reading glasses just doesn't cut it. So uh, that's the downside of exposure. and. Uh, now, the interesting part about this was when I was in a hospital in St. Louis, and of course you talk to the eye doctors and uh, they'll tell you they don't know the cause of this. 
on my last day there, when they were taking the bandages off, I had a young doctor that was in there and I said something to him about it. You know, I wished I knew what this was. And he said, he proceeded to tell me, thank God I asked this guy. He said, well, the only case I've ever seen of that, Tom, is I, we had two cell workers one time in here. They were on a cell tower working and they were up there and they turned the, turned this, fired this thing up not knowing there were two men on it yet and they both had vision problems and they developed the same condition I had due to microwave energy. Well, when this doctor told me that, I mean, you can see exactly where I went with that uh, because a lot of our science out there that Ted experienced and researched even abroad, the biggest factor they dealt with was microwave radiation. And, uh, we had one very dramatic case of an animal being killed by what we, Ted Dean, was microwave energy burst. And I can go into that with you sometime uh, or today. Morley Woods is just an intriguing place. Uh, and I can't even, you know, if you've read the book Skinwalker or seen the new series, uh, everything that's happened there virtually has happened in Marley. We've dealt with all the high strangeness and I'm talking about all the cryptids, the cattle mutilations, uh, strange entities. Uh, it just, it's all one and the same thing. There's so many similarities there. I will say this just because you brought it up um, until about five years ago, I was more or less on the fence about ufology about uh cryptids about ghosts and anything oh, yeah. anything that you would consider high strangeness to me it could have been explained by something prosaic something normal we just didn't know how to put those ter into terms that we understand right. when i i picked up the book hunt for the skinwalker by george knapp and colm kelleher and it was about their uh investigation uh that by the big old bigelow um that right that's it yeah exactly <laughs> that book right there literally changed my life yeah. i went from being a, a semi-skeptic to a believer now i was a closet believer i didn't really go out and start telling everybody hey i believe this is true or that true until 2017 when the new york times article came out then that gave me the confidence to start talking to people about what what I feel is the truth. I will tell you that the gentleman that helped write that book, Colm Keller, is a good friend of mine. And, you know, he worked for Bigelow, still does. And uh, he come out to Marley, spent time in Marley with us. And uh, so we have a connection. I was given that book. And like you, you know, I was so caught up. I didn't have time, really. And, and Ted said, you need to read this book, Tom. And I finally took got around to reading it and I just was I was just astounded the similarities and I'm like this you could put Marley Woods on that book yeah you know? really and, uh, really and that's what led Bigelow to get involved with Ted and Marley because he he recognized the similarities and uh that these things have a commonality about them and not just there worldwide uh yeah when you started telling me just listing all the weird anomalies that are going on out there. I, I mean, you could have been describing what I read in that book 
about Skinwalker Ranch. It's just a fascinating, fascinating uh, location. And it's, it's interesting. Have you, have you done any studies like, like really in-depth study, like mathematical calculation type um, analysis to see what is similar between the two locations? No, we haven't. We really haven't gone into any studies in depth, you know, between the two. Uh, I will tell you that when individuals involved in Skinwalker were out at our place and spent time with us, they they seen so many, you know, so many odd things that were taking place back. They could directly relate to they were dealing with that. Uh, it just, it was like they were back at Skinwalker. And, uh, and the, the odd thing about it is that unlike Skinwalker, there again, I will say that there's, there were truly, I believe at Skinwalker, it can go back into Native American presence and influence, which the strange thing is we have a lot of that same oddities and entities at Marley but we, we know we have absolutely no Native American input into it there. So how can these things which are attributed, and I'm speaking now briefly about uh, wolf-like creatures, you know, skinwalkers themselves. Um, you know, we have eye sightings and this gets into such strangeness that when I, the field I came from ufology with MUFON, I would have, this is far against my grain. I would not have went there. But when you deal with eyewitness testimonies, as Ted taught us, you have to take it and accept it. And, you know, we have caretakers out at these ranches that have seen progressions of hooded figures on the roads, private roads. And when they got close to these things, they've shot at them with no effect. One individual said they turned to them and the only thing he's seen had like a wolf, wolf-like face on one of the hooded figures. Now, where do you go with that? I mean, um, do I believe these individuals seen these things? I absolutely do. Do I believe there's a breeding population on there? I know there isn't. So there again, it enters into the dimensional aspect of it. Um, so, but that's one thing that we really had a problem with. Where do we come off having the same entities or experiences that Skinwalker had, and we don't have the commonalities there, you know. Uh, it, no curses it, or it, it seems to me that the, but it's possible possible that that location may have been shunned or taboo by the the local uh, tribes in I think so. in the Marley Woods area, whereas in, so. in the Utah area, those local tribes. Ad, ad, adapted it into their own culture and their own beliefs. What what was going on there? Um, that's the only thing that I could come to c- conclusion. I could come to. Um, but w- the one thing that uh, was probably the most alarming to me about Skinwalker, you haven't mentioned it about Marley Woods, but I, I'm I'm about to ask you if if it is there is that some of the um, members of the, the uh, group that were investigating Skinwalker Ranch reported 
having activity follow them home. It, has that happened from at, at the Marley Woods location? No, it hasn't. And I will say I'm, I'm not sad about that. I, believe me, that had crossed all our minds at times, especially, well, the only thing that followed me home were the, were the physical effects that I, you know, I attained there. But, uh, but no, and that, believe me, we thought a lot about that, especially when we, the high strangeness, the more cases we got dealing with entities and uh, that we really, and some of the locals around there experiences they had. And, uh, and actually, you know, we, we never had that happen, knock on wood, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm, I'm thankful for that aspect because you don't want to bring that stuff home to your family. And contrary to popular belief, I know so many people want to get in the field and investigate things and that's good. Uh, but, you know, you wish you get, so many people wish to get in the middle of things. And I, I'll just say, you know, be careful for what you wish for, you know, the adage, it could come true. And there is a risk factor associated with the true places as Skinwalker, as those people, even on the show now, experience, you know, at times, and what we experience. So, you know, it's nothing you want to play around with. It's, it's real, very real. And uh, it happens. Um, I've, uh, I, I've had other uh, researchers who've been looking into these things for decades uh, tell me the same thing. Be careful what you wish for, because you may learn more than you want to really know. Yeah. Um, and we don't have to get into what those things are, because, man, some of those things are weird. I mean, weird beyond what we're talking about right now. Oh, yeah. And yeah, that's a that's a pretty surefire way to scare off some newbies that have just started <laughs> down the path. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Had I known what would have taken me, it would have scared me off, believe me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Although being connected with Ted Phillips, I would have took the risk any day. But uh, That's cool. Uh, I'd do it all over again, I can tell you that, in a heartbeat. Yeah, well, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, my uh, my own path on this, on this uh, quest for the truth has been relatively... Uh, benign you know it's been um I, I haven't really experienced any kind of negativity from it other than hey me and a friend of mine and my wife went out to uh you know where the black mailbox is at area 51 have you heard oh, of that yeah, yeah. We, we went up there to do some sky watching and shoot some do some astrophotography out there one night and it was about 22 degrees outside and we were out there um, until about 9 p.m. at night, and that's all we could take. <laughs> you know, it, we just froze our butts off being outside. <laughs> that's yeah. the worst. That's the worst thing we've ever experienced. Um, but I guess when you're in the field and you're studying this stuff, kind of face to face, like you are, there is a risk factor. Um, now, I, I'm curious the uh, the name Marley Woods. You you said that it's a it's a fictional title that you guys gave the location. Can you tell me where that came from? 
Yes, I can. Uh, Ted had a great white Pyrenees, a dog. His name was Marley. And he loved to go in the woods near their home. So Ted was confronted one time about a name to, on a report to give to this. And he was in his office at home and he looks at the dog and he, he instantly, he said, Marley Woods. So that's how the term got its origin. Uh, but, uh, and I, believe me, we've had people try to convince, they found Marley Woods, they found it on the, on the map, it's not Missouri. And I pity the people that lived in towns named Marley Woods and communities, because they were gonna be beat to death by people who think they found Marley Woods. So, <laughs> but that's the origin of the name. And not many people know that, I'm glad you asked that. That's, you're the first one that's asked that in a long time. Oh, well, cool. I'm glad, uh, uh, you know, sometimes I do come up with a, a one or two unique questions. I, I try to keep it as fresh and interesting for the listener because I know, you know, you've done multiple interviews with other uh, podcasters, radio shows. Um, so I, I don't want to get into stuff that you've already put out there. Because if my listeners, at the end of each episode, I, I um, give the guest an opportunity to say where listeners can find out more about them. And people are going to go instantly to all of your YouTube interviews, all of your podcast interviews, and just consume everything that you or any of my other guests have done. I, I want my interviews to be different. So that's why I try to go down paths that may have not been uh, well-traveled. Um, now, I, I know you've alluded to Ted's work overseas. He was in Vietnam for a period of time. Was he there during the war? Uh, yes, I can. And, you know, Ted recently passed away. And Ted really didn't want to get in. Ted told me, he said, Tom, he said, when I'm gone, there are certain things you can talk about. He says, I really don't give a damn when I'm gone. He didn't want to go there. He didn't want the ridicule and he didn't want, you know, why didn't you say this? Why didn't you bring this out? Or he was a man of science. He wanted to devote his life to the physical trace. And he didn't, again, want to interject what he'd been a part of. Although what he'd been a part of is some of the most incredible uh, cases that's ever been out there. Now, the one in Vietnam, he'd been in Africa, he'd been in Soviet Union, uh, he'd been in Germany and uh, Slovakia. Slovakia is where the Project Moonshaft is. I won't touch upon that now, but, but the one that so led him to the conclusion that Marley was real and it was so relevant was, it was directly related. Everything that happened in Marley, the reports, it, he directly dealt with in the case in Vietnam. Now, I can go into that for you, a little, uh, just a brief synopsis because the report so basically what that involved was Alan couldn't make this case. So again, Ted went and Ted wasn't in service at all. Oh, what, what year was it? Uh, this was in the 60s. Okay. So it, and, it uh, would have been during I, the, the war era, right? It was very much during the Vietnam War and it was active. And what that entailed was Ted was brought over with intelligence where it should have been Heineck, but they brought Ted over because Heineck couldn't make it. There were, he was brought over to Vietnam 
at an airfield. He was put on a chopper, one of three choppers that lifted off and went in behind en enemy lines several miles now. And what it entailed was there was a, and you must know that parts of Vietnam, even to this day, but especially back then, there were tribes there that were virtually Stone Age. You know, I mean, even their dialect, the rest of the Vietnamese people couldn't understand. There were very few tribesmen around the area that it was difficult for them to find translators to understood their dialect, but they were brought into a, a mountaintop village plateau where it had been, I should say. And this area had a history, here we go again, of entities in this jungle and I can add when we term it, when I get all done with this story, I'll just give you a little insight behind this. But Ted was brought in, three choppers touched down. The translator they got, they found two surviving witnesses to what had happened. And what it entails was a story that over time, the, the tribe on top of this village in the mountain plateau had built a relationship actually with entities, structured vehicles had landed there at times. And they had a working relationship for whatever reason. All kind of strange critters in, I mean, Bigfoot type like stuff, stuff we dealt with out at Marley, uh, hooded figures again. And the biggest thing they dealt with was the unseen force in the light balls. And when that's why when Ted got the reports from the ranchers in Missouri of the unseen force in the light ball activity, he directly, he could not be not interested in it. So what had happened on this village, for whatever reason, it's not clear. The intelligence had reports of what they had thought was a low-grade nuclear explosion from the energy yield on top of this plateau. Well, they had roughly, they brought in the, some scientists and these other choppers, brought in Ted to give the ufologists which was Alan Hynek's position, opinion, and investigation. They did soil sampling. They, they did a scan first. They could find no radiation, residual radiation. The villagers that they interviewed said that on this given day, for whatever reason, the villagers got into it with the occupants of this craft. For, and there again, it's what could they possibly with, you know, technology, get into you know what what would that serve but evidently they did the structured crafts left and then three red light balls which again this is what got ted so interested in marley when he heard it three red light balls passed through the center of the village behind that came an unseen force which totally decimated wiped out any trace of the village the huts everything was down to the dirt and uh, the, they did find some bodies that were irradiated badly. There again, radiated, burned by radiation with no radiation, residual radiation. So the only thing there again, which is so common in ufology, it was just in the microwave spectrum. Because, and people say, well, it doesn't have to leave a trace. So at this point, I'll tell you, if you put a steak in a microwave oven and eat it, you can take that steak out of a microwave oven fully cooked and you're not going to find any, you better hope there's no residual radiation on it, you know. So uh, 
But anyway, they were brought in, they had four hours only uh, to review the site, interview. They took two of the witnesses back that were surviving, which died later. Uh, so that in a nutshell, and there's a lot more information on that, but that in a nutshell is what Ted dealt with. So uh, now you can see directly why he, when he seen the trademarks at Marley, why it so intrigued him, you know. And he was always worried to tell, I will say that it wasn't till very later years, and I had the task myself of telling one of the ranchers about this, that he, Ted was scared to death that he didn't want to worry, of course, relay this story to the ranchers what happened over there in Vietnam and they're going to directly think oh my god you know is this going to happen to us and so that was a degree of you know it never escalated to that thank god but the red light balls in Marley when they have been seen to do things it's not been good so let's see so okay so the the incident in Vietnam is still very interesting uh, there was there was uh, a couple of survivors. Did they take uh, witness testimony from the survivors before they passed? Yes, they did. And here again, you know, this is the part when you're dealing with the public. Uh, Ted was brought in there with intelligence. And as far as being in, I don't know if you're you're familiar with John Greenwald. I'm yes. sure the black hole. Right. Uh, I doubt he's the, we know John, he did some projects with us. Uh, he's a great guy and he works tirelessly at the Black Vault and uh, what he's released, you know, the Freedom of Information Act is incredible, but I doubt even with all his expertise, if he could get into an area where this has been documented. Uh, 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 Ted looked for years after he got through Allen and tried to get the doc his own records, his own paperwork, he could never get back, you know. He turned everything over that he did, you know, before he left the airfield. And to this day, I don't know if anyone, that's in a vault, believe me, uh, one of several cases he worked on, and that was the understanding though, you know. Uh, they, so I doubt, publicly I know there's no awareness and this has never been documented, you know, and. Uh, I will tell you that there, there is a sidelight to this, a sidebar that you're gonna really find interesting. Uh, as in some of the other cases that Ted worked in, uh, the, if you're familiar at all, and there was some talk, Ted always thought the origin of this movie uh, was, you, do you remember the movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Oh yeah, Predator. Predator. Now think about that experience and there was always a thought that that had gotten the, the seed for that loosely based on this occurrence that happened in the Vietnam jungle. So Ted could never prove that but he, he had worked with people in the media and there had been people in the media that had leaked it to Ted that that was loosely based sort of on this account. And um, I could see that I could I could easily see the uh, the similarities between the movie Predator and the accounts that you've just told me about this Vietnam incident. Right. The entire village was wiped out. Two survivors who later died. Yeah. 
So, but so what? You know, was, according to them, what uh, what was the um, was there any additional information that they gleaned from talking with the survivors? Just that, and this is the part that is really it's you really got to open your mind to a new level because according to this this tribal village that was so primitive that they had been dealing back with these entities as far back as their knowledge they're passing on from generation to gener generation in that area so this was not a one-time occurrence this was a relationship that they felt that these natives had had with these entities you know going back maybe hundreds thousands of years maybe you know uh, in that area, there's all kind of petroglyphs, you know, drawings of entities and things like that. That so this was not Ted didn't believe it was a one-time occurrence in that area. That it was very real and it, it went way back. It had its origin in there. So so something went horribly wrong that uh, created some kind of a conflict between the anomaly or the the phenomenon. You know, and the it was the, village. it was thought that maybe you know there was a genetic thing that was brought into play. There were some of the people that Ted had talked to there that thought maybe that they were either maybe performing experiments on these people or doing something on this this tribe that they didn't want. They could not have any of this get out or you know escape that area. And you know there was some thought that they just took this village out because they were messing around with these people, you know, genetically hmm. or whatever reason. So, you know, we'll never know that. In fact, most of the world doesn't even know and we'll never know this happened. So, <laughs> uh, but that was one avenue that they have thought about in relation to that. Well, with that in mind, with the, uh, the, the, oh, okay. But before I get into that, I, Sometimes I ask a partial question and then stop. So it's a good thing there's editing and this is not live. <laughs> I, I sometimes give a partial answer. And it's <laughs> first, the, the, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, the, um, ha, have there been any kind of healing effects experienced from interactions with these entities? Uh, at Marley now, you're talking? Or, yes, yes. Uh, the closest I can come to that is the, a lot of the, the ranchers and the, the people that live in the area, especially the older people, they, I've never heard any reports of actual healing in that area. I have associated with other UFO accounts in Missouri, but not there. But the closest thing I can account to that, relate to that is that some of the old people there seem to have the unique ability to have a sense about them that they predetermine when these things are gonna occur, like the biggest displays and everything. Now, if you go down the religious aspect of this, some of the people will come out and drag their lawn chairs and head for where they think it's gonna happen and watch it. And they think it's a good thing. Some of the people will go hide, lock their house up, turn the lights out and go to bed. And they're scared to death of this stuff. So, but there it seems to be a commonality that a lot of the older people can actually 
perceive when these things are going to start. And, uh, you know, some of them look, so that's a. <laughs> it seems like there's some, some enhanced precognition abilities right. in, in the local population there. Right. So that's what it sounds like you're describing. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, have they displayed any other type of psychic abilities uh, that you studied or aware uh, of? No, no, that, that's, that's really the bulk of it. I mean, now I can just, the only thing I can add to that personally is on one of my very first trips there, Ted has spoke about a phenomenon that uh, I didn't really pay much attention to. And, but uh, one particular morning, we, we were usually out because like I said, the bewitching hour is usually 3 a.m., not midnight as so many people think. Most people in paranormal ufology will know instant. If you ask them a, what hour would do most activities start, they'll tell you 3 a.m., not midnight. And uh, this one particular evening, we had been doing all kind of uh, prep work outside. And we, we would usually tend to go out at midnight and stay out till sunup. But uh, one evening we stayed in, we slept, and uh, one of the rare occasions, and about 3.15 in the morning, I knew I woke up and I looked at the, the clock right next to me, and, and uh, I, I felt like something shook me, woke me up, and I had this sense of overwhelming joy, and it's, I, I can't even describe it, and uh, something drove was drawing me out on, we had a big deck around three sides of this office, which was really nice. We had a fantastic view. And I went out that door and went on that deck. I expected to see the mothership out there. I mean, I felt like I was going to meet something or, I mean, I had this just sense of joy. And I always felt like something was with me, standing out there with me. And I absolutely could not see anything. I couldn't hear anything. And I was just I went from great expectations to just being depressed. You know, what, what, what's out here? What I did nothing, you know? So I run in and tell woke Ted up about this thinking he'd have a, a big response. And I woke Ted up and he, he turned, he rolled over in the other bunk there and he looked at me and he, he said, I told him what had occurred. And he looked at me and he said, you remember me talking about that Tom? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, welcome to Marley, Tom. <laughs> he went back to bed. So <laughs> That's pretty cool. The, uh, the, uh, from what you described with the incident in Vietnam, some of the negative effects that people have experienced there at Marley Woods. Uh, now, there, there is two sides of the argument as far as the phenomenon in general, as a whole. Some people believe that it is absolutely benevolent. They're here to help us, guide us, nurture us, and they're just here for, for good alone. Other people feel like they are mostly indifferent to us, but could potentially cause great harm and could even be considered a threat. If you're looking at it from the Department of Defense perspective, it is absolutely a threat. Where do you fall 
in those two within those two areas of of understanding well i can absolutely tell you and now i'm going to base this on a lot smarter people than i that i've been associated with that i absolutely do not believe it's benevolent uh and why i say that is that there is a, a case study. Now, I'm going to go a little bit off Marley here, if that's okay with you. Yes, absolutely. We're talking in general. Uh, uh, Alan Hynek had formed the opinion that after the dimensional aspect was resolved, and most people don't know that. I mean, it virtually in the people that dealt with this back then, they absolutely knew it was dimensional, not interplanetary, which steps on a lot of toes, I know. But they were made aware of, and uh, there's... Von Braun, the rocket scientist, I know you probably have heard of, he had a, uh, his protege was named Dr. Carol Rosen. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. Um, she's still around. She's very much a good speaker and you might look her up. And uh, I met her and she's a, a, an in, just an invaluable amount of information. But why I go there and say this about Von Braun and Alan and I can go another place, which is really going to blow your mind. I will do that after this tie-in. But uh, Alan and Von Braun preached one thing and let Ted got Ted to believe in this and showed the. Now the source, I don't know exactly know where it come from and where they got this from, but they both all felt that at some point, and I don't ever look for disclosure to happen from our government because they've been a part of it for so long and, and they're never gonna, it touches base with so many different elements that they cannot, it, it, disclosure will never come uh, on, their, on their terms, you know. So, but what this entails is there's gonna be a false flag, what Alan called it, and Von Braun and Dr. Carol Rose, she still does lectures on this subject they all predicted at some point there was going to be a disclosure brought upon by the entity, by the phenomena, and they were going to come forth and they were going to be benign. They were going to be here and uh, benefit mankind. And it will be when mankind is at its sinks to its lowest, or there's a tremendous, which I hope it's not what we're experiencing now, uh, but uh, at some point they'll come and with their technologies, they will heal, they'll increase everything from food production to renewable energy, they'll have, they'll share things, and the world will worship them. And all I can say is it's not benign and their motivation is not good. And there's, I'll draw one similarity, uh, and this again with a time set, I don't know, uh, you're probably aware of the, the show Twilight Zone. Yes. I don't know. Uh, did you ever see the episode called To Serve Mankind? Yeah. Right. Okay. Now I'm going to give you a little insight on that again. This will blow your mind. And I cannot document this, but you know, Rod Serling produced The Twilight Zone. And you know, he was very much a ufo in ufology and he produced some really outstanding documentaries. Rod Serling did. It has begun, and I think was the name of one, and some other outstanding. You might look those up. They're really great. But 
he had got to know, actually, I was told from a good source, Alan Hynek. And actually, there again, the, the plot for <laughs> to serve mankind was loosely based on information that Alan Hynek had given him on that. So that's a little backstory. Every time I watch that episode, I just can't, I, I can't imagine, uh, you know, the backstory, what went on behind the scenes on that. But, uh, and you, I don't have to tell you the end result of that episode, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying that's the, the motivation at all. So, well, I mean. Are you familiar with the uh, book, uh, um, Childhood's End? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. That I, I, I think it's by Arthur C. Clarke. I may be mistaken yeah, on the on the author. So. But I think so. Yeah, his uh, his argument was pretty similar to what you were describing right now, and that the um, the the ETs or the aliens, whatever you want to call them, are going to show up. They're going to make vast improvements throughout the world, and and then when they reveal themselves, they look like demons. And that's where people freak out and they don't know what to think, you know, but they've already decided that these are our saviors. We have to, you know, we have to subjugate ourselves to them. And then it turns out that they're what, what we perceive as demons. Right. I don't and know if know, that's where the, I don't know if that's where the story ends or not. And I don't know that, they actually were demons, but they, they absolutely looked like what we right. would consider demons. Right. And, uh, and I will, you know, it goes into so much, uh, it, it's so much information, you know, that I've been exposed to. It just makes my head swim sometimes. Uh, and I always look back and I like, I always think, you know, who, who, who the hell am I to try to download some of this stuff that I've picked up and been fortunate to be with people now, you know, but on the other hand, I always think, you know, I'm, I'm in more in March, I'm supposed to have an, an operation and it's, it's nothing really big. It's not minor, but I always think that, uh, you know, if something happens to me, I'm trying to download this stuff. And there are some other people that know some of this and, but I don't want all this just to, to go away. And uh, I would like to form it that at least if not a warning, just if this does occur and this starts going down, uh, just to have people have an open mind and just don't accept everything you see as being real and for your benefit, you know. Uh, in, in respect to that, um, I kind of hesitate to say this because it really tells people where my my feelings are about humanity but i feel like the majority of people are still asleep and they they would fall for anything oh yeah and um that that's the unfortunate well and i don't feel that's getting better i really don't yeah no i agree Uh, uh too many and I hate to say this, young people, they're so preoccupied with technology and technology can be a wonderful thing, a great thing. But when you let it take over your life to the point, you know, you don't know what's going on around you. It's, 
it's not a good avenue, you know. Yeah. It's, it, and I've seen that. I, uh, Let's rewind a little bit and bring it back to a little more of a positive uh, <laughs> um, direction because, yeah, this this whole topic could get really dark, but I don't think that's where it needs to be. You know, I think no. there's still a lot of intrigue and mystery and uh, a, a lot of fascinating information that people can glean from looking into this topic. Um, people like yourself that are bringing this knowledge to the forefront. Um, what's the message that you would want new people that are just getting introduced to these topics? Um, what would you want to tell them? And then people that have already been in the field for a while and have come to some conclusions, what would you tell them that, and how, how do those two people, those two types of people differ? Uh, That's a lot. I, so take it, take it one at a no, time if you like. No, that, uh, you know, basically the one thing that I just, I can't, I can't, I have an anger management problem with is just uh, do not, and this come from my training with MUFON and interviewing witnesses. Do not ever ridicule people, no matter how strange it sounds, no matter what they've said they've experienced, what they've seen, no matter how hard it is for you to accept, just, you know, at best put it in your gray basket, as Stanton Freeman used to always say so often and Ted, uh, but never ridicule anybody for what they've said they've experienced or seen. And believe me, we've had, we've dealt with people that we've had to, over the years, put a lot in the gray basket, <laughs> but more than, more than not, we've come, we've, we've seen what they've said. We see commonalities, maybe years later that we pull that out of the gray basket and say, well, maybe that wasn't so crazy after all, you know? So that's the biggest pet peeve I have is never ridicule anybody, you know, that, that claim. And, and when you work with people after a while, you can pretty much determine if they're making this up or if it's, you know, they're look, seeking publicity, which, which I can tell you at Marley was never publicity because Ted had over 380 witnesses and never reported it to anybody but their family. So what's, what's the point of this, you know? Uh, so, um, and I will say that ridicule with eyewitness testimony, I've seen people's lives in a small community ruined with ridicule. You know, uh, people lose their livelihoods and uh, businesses and things like that uh, from ridicule. And, um, but that's one of the biggest areas that I really have a sore subject with, you know. And other than that, it's just, when you're out there and you're dealing with something, always try to deal, as Ted taught us, with the science of it. Try to stick with, with documentation and the science and try to bring back, you know, what, what you, whatever you can collect and deal with that, you know, and, uh, and keep your eyes open and, and your ears open, you know, and, uh, and no fact is too small. Ted always uh, treated everything like CSI, like a crime scene. Uh, there was nothing, no object too small, no evidence, you know, anything you've seen could come into play. And uh, 
so often we pick up facts that didn't make sense or anything at the time. And then later, a year later, they directly relate into another case. So that would be another aspect, I would say, you know. Those are great points. Uh, and it reminded me that, um, it, it, so for people that are just getting into this, that are, that, because I, I, I feel like the awareness is growing exponentially right now. I think more and more people are starting to come to grips, even though there's still a majority of people that don't want to accept it. More and more people are starting to come to terms that there's, there's a reality beyond what we can understand. A lot of those people are starting to do some research and to look at different aspects of the phenomenon. Is there, is there anything that you would recommend that those people Besides what you've already said, which is, I 100% agree with you. The ridicule factor needs to go and just it needs to stop, and never be brought back into this topic at all. But um, what what kind of steps should people take to educate themselves and start talking about this in a more serious manner? Well, I I just want to interject something here that was taught to me a long time ago by a photo analyst that was an Air Force captain, Jim Cross. And now this is going to affect a lot of people. They're not going to want to hear this. And I know a lot of professionals aren't going to want to hear this. But the man was the state of the art in photography back then in the day. He analyzed a lot of Air Force footage. He was actually a fighter pilot one time. And Jim taught me, he worked with me with negatives and he taught me the best type of, which young people don't know what negatives are, but uh, the best type of negative is a slide film and young people say, well, what's a slide? But the information you can gain off a a photographic image on a a negative from slide film, you can document it as, I mean, you can go places with that negative and prove hard science you can bring things out in that negative that there's no way to fake it. And Jim taught me a long time ago at the, in digital photography was just starting back then when I was working with him. But Jim taught me, and I was crazy about that. I thought, man, digital photography, that's gonna be wonderful. And don't have to lug high speed film around, you know, you just, your storage is gonna be, I mean, it just, and, but Jim, he said, well, I'll tell you this, Tom, he said, when you get into the realm and you will, and you deal with digital photography, he said, photographs are going to mean absolutely nothing. And, you know, to this day, I always remember those words and what I'm going to say in with deep fake going on, you know, I'm sure you're aware of that with video. And uh, we're going to reach a point where, and especially it's hard with, with ufology that people are going to want to see images and they're going to see images but you're not going to be able to believe any image or photograph you see. We're, we're at that point really now. Uh, or video for that matter. Or video, right. I mean, they've got it so perfected in video almost that I've seen some pieces of film where, you know, and even especially in photography, uh, the software that's even with the, with the right software to take something apart to prove it's not real 
is getting almost in the realm of even the intelligence agencies will tell you they really are past the point where they can determine if a photograph is real or not, even with their resources. So that always, that's one issue that I would like to, you know, you, you see video footage or I know so many people get up, get, you know, in an uproar and get excited about this piece of video or photograph and I've got to go back to my training and, uh, you know, it's nice and people will ask me, what do you think of this? What do you think of this picture, this video? And I, I'll say, you know, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's a nice piece of film, a photograph. I just can't accept it, you know, and, uh, and boy, that, that brings up hostilities with people, you know, <laughs> they don't want to go there. And I, I know why, and, uh, which is unfortunate for the individuals that actually see someone out with a digital camera or video and capture the, the most astounding breathtaking footage you'd ever see. And they bring and put it and they air it on the internet. Well, two thirds of everybody sees on the internet Oh, that's oh, that's Photoshop. I I know how that's you know that's that's a joke. That looks ridiculous. And well, you know, maybe they're looking at authentic film there and images. And uh, but to differentiate between the two is almost past the realm of capability. So that's really one thing that's changed in ufology since I started. You know, in it because at least we had negatives, and if you had people that knew what they were doing you could authenticate it, that it was real. So what I hear you saying, just to put it into a, a, a little nutshell, is look at this topic with an open mind, right. but also look at it with a critical, very critical mindset. Right. right. And, and don't be duped. Don't be, allow yourself to be um, misled because of your desire to believe. Got it. Okay. That's smart. Yep. Unless you were there, you know, the eyewitness and you were there and you know, you really just can't go beyond the point that it's a nice, it's a nice video and a nice photo. And, um, and I, I know where that upsets a lot of people, especially in the ufology, you know, but it's, that's, that's the science of it. So. <laughs> the, the podcast um, dead hand radio is about the cold war. UFOs and the paranormal. When I started it out, it was originally just covering aspects of the Cold War. Uh, and I quickly found out how closely related to the Cold War the UFO phenomenon is. I mean, it's just insane. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I dove into that head first, and it's been an interesting journey. Um, one of the things that I try to do on every episode that I'm, uh, I'm absolutely committed to talking about on every UFO episode that I do is that with, um, with, with Congress now starting to talk about the UFO topic and the military openly talking about the, the UFO topic, that people can also get involved and help push this topic forward so that it becomes more widely recognized, widely accepted. And the way they do that is to 
start talking about it to other people, but also to write into your congressmen and women uh, and write into your representatives and tell them how important this topic is and that it needs to be looked at seriously and studied by the scientific community. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, yes, I really do. Um, I will tell you that in probably the year 2000, uh, Bruce Wittemann and MUFON, and I was part of that, they, they spent some time at the Capitol in Missouri. We had an initiative, a petition, and we had didn't quite have enough signatures, which they play games with you at times to get enough signatures. Uh, when you think you've had enough, they'll change a date or you don't have enough. So, but we, we approached that, we tried that once, we didn't, didn't have success with that, not to say it can't be done. Uh, but I will, there's people in the field, uh, Stephen, Stephen Greer, I believe, I don't know if you've ever heard of him and Steve Bassett, which I know him personally, he was a, a lobbyist before he became a ufologist in Washington, DC. And, um, you know, they're, they're big in, in uh, having this, they're going down that avenue, you know, they're trying to, and uh, with some success, some little success. And, and, you know, that goes back with Alan, I just feel kind of the best opportunity we had for that was back with Alan Hynek and Ted, Jacques Vallée, uh, several others, scientists, they had a council before the UN in the United Nations, they spoke before. And they had, you know, they were really making head, headways with that until the, the powers that be, and I will tell you, I've worked with some people that I will tell you behind the scenes, about 50% of the people in intelligence would like this to be out. And the other half will, are dedicated that this will never be and can't be released. So you're up against that. And, uh, I'd like to say with, with new people in the field, that's changed. But from what I hear, that's still pretty much the, the rules of the game. So, you know, but I'd say never give up. And, uh, but that that's basically what I'd say on that, you know. Uh, well, the, the more people that are aware of this topic and the more people talking about it uh, and the more pressure that the masses can put on the government for, to bring this information to the public. I think we can slowly make progress in the right direction. I don't know that, like you said, disclosure may never happen, but that's not, that's not the end game. The end game is to just get answers. And, right, right. you know, if we get a little bit more information each year, then we're making progress. And that's, that's what I'm committed to. You know, I, I will say that I do believe the, the phenomenon is increasing. I do believe, as some have said, that uh, the, the dimensional boundaries are weakening for whatever reason. More of this stuff is coming through. And there again, a lot of it isn't good. Uh, that's not to say that some of it isn't good, but uh, it just, I, and Ted always thought that in, a, in the future that this stuff was going to make itself known at the precise time and point and people weren't going to be able to deny, you know, when it was on their call, it's, 
it, it, it will be known, you know, so, uh, so, and I, I don't know if we're that far from it, actually, I really don't. Uh, but then again, maybe not, you know, people were thinking this back, there were teams of people that thought in the 60s that this would be in the 70s, and then the 80s and the 90s. And here we are, and I can't believe, you know, 2021. And uh, but there are a lot, of, lot more coming out from the government. Uh, and there, I will tell you behind the scenes, their hands are being forced for a lot of this to come out. And uh, so you're seeing things now we would have dreamt for. Back in, the, back in the day, we're seeing video footage and acknowledgments from the government themselves, you know, and uh, where they never would have gone before, you know. So <laughs> there is that. <laughs> well, okay. So when you say behind the scenes, are you telling me to to not make that public, or is that something that you that's knowledge you have, but it's okay for you to say oh, publicly? No. You know that. No, it's okay for me publicly okay. to say. Believe me, there's a lot of things I've said that there's people that uh, there are people that don't want me to go there, uh, but uh, and there's people that that were associated with Ted and that's been in this all along. Believe me, if you're in this, if you get in this field and you get anybody credible or do any serious research, it, it'll be known. I will say that, you know, and, but you got to make the decision. And, and I really don't, at this point, I really don't give a damn. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> uh, but, and I'm not saying that there's, you know, anything bad, uh, there are bad things happen to good people sometimes. I will say that in the field in the early days, especially. But, um, but there's so much of this that's I and they know it too. That it's gonna I think very in the near future start making itself known that it's kind of pointless to try to stop people and some of this. I mean, it's like like a wicker basket trying to keep water out, you know, and from coming out. It's just. Uh, it's going to be there and it's and the phenomena is changing and morphing that's something that Ted always taught us you know that it's so different from when he started in it and it's so different than when I started in it even you know it's uh so well, I would really like to get into hearing your theories and get into speculation um we'll save that for another time uh because I've we've been talking for two hours and I really want to respect your time. And I, I want to give, I want to give you an opportunity to, to let people know if they're okay. So you mentioned that you're bringing forward some of the work that you and Ted worked on. Uh, and, and when is that coming out and how can people find it? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what we're, we're working on a platform that, over the last no oh, year and a half, I've had so many people uh, make offers, and unfortunately, some of them they wanted to do a couple episodes of show here or there, you know, and and because of the virus, they they were demanding they wanted to do it right now, and I I told them it wasn't possible, and so the best platform we're working on. Uh, I'm going, trying to go back through Adam Johnson, which was a team member. And you may be if aware or 
familiar with the name Douglas Trumbull, that he was the one that was in Close Encounters, the third kind in 2001 Space Odyssey. He did all the special effects in that, those movies. Okay. And, um, and um, we, uh, and Brainstorm was another movie that he did the, worked on. Uh, he has a production company too. And at this point in time, rather than, because so many of the TV, and I will say Skinwalkers getting in, it's a lot of Hollywood at times, but they actually get into some of the science and they try to do it the right way, you know, I feel. Uh, but it's one of the few shows that they all want to get in and do the, the Hollywood gig, you know, and, and shoot some stuff and make it happen and leave, you know, and not do the science aspect of it. That's why Ted refused a couple people. But uh, Douglas Trumbull, which was involved with, you know, Close Encounters, is, you're, you're familiar with that movie. Yeah. Uh, he always felt that Marley Woods, not in itself, but as a site, he wanted to make the sequel to Close Encounters as how the phenomena has morphed into the days of Close Encounters to what it is now. And he wanted to, we, we would like to take this and give all the tie-ins and as beautifully as they did in that movie, we, he wanted to, we'd like to make a Marley Woods type he, sequel to go through a movie type platform to do the story of Ted and Marley Woods at this point, because we feel like you could do it more justice and trying to get in and shoot some lights in the sky and, you know, and some shenanigans with some guys on the ground. And then, you know, that's episode one. And so, uh, but there are a few people we're dealing with that want to do the, a true documentary. And uh, I mean, I've been working with in a year and a half, probably three, four people that uh, we're still talking about doing something like to get out there. And, uh, but it, it all depends too on the, the virus, you know, and, uh, and what, what transgresses in the economy and everything. So, and I, I sad to say, I hate to even go there, but I, the political spectrum has entered into this too. I can't tell you. Uh, so it's, that's another avenue. I actually, I really kind of detest politics at times. And, uh, but, uh, so anyway, that's what we're working on. And uh, we'd like to see a, a feature length sequel on the phenomena that's exhibited in Marley Woods and the type of uh, skinwalker sites, you know, and, and go into that, that realm. So, uh, so that's where we're, where we're at right now. Okay, so that's just in the infancy of, of production, I mean, not even production, but in, in concept right now, it sounds like. Yeah, okay. I will say, if it wouldn't have been for this virus, I would venture to say we probably had with one outfit, we would probably had three, four episodes shot right now. Um, it but, sounds like from what you've explained to me, described in, in our conversation, it definitely warrants serious, serious investigation, documentation and exposure to the public. Um, oh, the only thing with that is once you do that, then it turns that place into a circus. What are your feelings well, on that? That is, 
that is such a sore subject. You know, we've dealt with people in the media that have been out there. Uh, very few people uh, that we trust. Uh, uh, Ted, we explicitly trust. There are few individuals that have done things with Ted before, and uh, he shot some films on uh, some on the History Channel with these people that we trust. And uh, but then. The only beautiful part about this is if we go with Adam Johnson, which has his own production company now, we can explain, you know, Adam's one of us, and I know we can trust his people, whoever he'd bring on there. So we'd have that covered, you know, but, but, you know, will we keep this location secret and out of the realm of public knowledge? We absolutely will. And not because we want to or think we're building suspicion in this, you know, our intrigue. It's due, we owe it to the people involved in their property. And I, I don't have to tell you, like you just mentioned, if we would bring this out, like uh, unfortunately, like Skinwalker, you don't see behind the scenes that they've got gated security there around the clock. And you don't see behind the scenes, the amount of people that they deal with at that ranch because it's known, you know, uh, believe me, there's a lot of that. So. Uh, we just, to our best ability, we don't betray these people and we got to keep it under wraps. And there has been a few people that think they have found, like I said, Marley, and they have not. And there has been a few people that have been near Marley and they've talked to local people around. And most of the locals are keyed in enough that they won't uh, betray the place. But if a few, if they think that they have found Marley, they're at the wrong location and they're there a couple of days or a week and, oh, it's all a bunch of BS, you know, that there's nothing here. So, <laughs> or they see somebody's uh, dusted dawn light and they say, well, that's what it is in Marley, you know, so yeah. we've had that. We've had that. So Everybody thinks they have the answer. Oh, yeah. 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 And that's one thing that really, uh, the older I get, the more, less patience I have. But in the last time we were on the lecture circuit with Ted going around, you know, we'd get so many young people come up that had just gotten into subject and they'd start criticizing Ted's work, you know, and telling them what it is and arguing with Ted and Ted would just walk away. And, mm -hmm. and that's why he actually got off the lecture circuit. He just couldn't, he didn't have the patience for it anymore for the ridicule and, and he didn't need to be there. You know, that's, that's not productive and that, that doesn't accomplish anything. So. Well, it is it is awesome that you're continuing his work and continuing to to spread the message, um, and turning it into your own work. You know, it's 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 a good thing that you are continuing the legacy and well, through that building your own legacy. Well, I appreciate that, and it has been a big part of my life. Believe me, even uh, I'm retired now, uh, but. Even in my working career, I was, I will tell you, it was a struggle. I was, uh, I worked for an outfit, which is gone now. So I can, I worked for a uh, Challenger offshore power boats. I was their electrical engineer. I did the layout work and uh, implemented the first Hersey electrical data bus system in it. And instead of fuses or breakers, it was electronic program circuits. And that's that, but anyway, uh, when at the height of my work at Challenger, you know, the my one longest day 
day, I, I, I will tell you, is I was in the morning, I worked on a project for them on some boats they sold. I was in Bermuda at seven o'clock in the morning. And at midnight, I was in the middle of a field out in Morley Woods in Missouri. Wow. So that tells you what I was working, trying to balance uh, my life with Marley. So that, that is dedication to, uh, to, what do you call that? I don't know, just dedication, I guess. Um, out of necessity, I might add, but. <laughs> yeah, well, everybody has to earn a living somehow. And then oh, you, yeah. you do what you have to, to earn a living. And then you do what you want to, to, to actually enjoy life. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I think that's a great place for us to end this, uh, this interview and we'll to be continued again, because there's a lot more that we can still talk about, but oh, Moonshift. yeah, absolutely. I, I do. Thank you, Bert. you have, if this intrigues you and it's reality and it should, I will tell you that Moonshift is very real. And, when you get that true story that involves history, World War II, it goes into uh, the first uranium ore mine that Madame Curie bought from the family that involved in Munchen. It's You won't believe the story of an artifact that was found in Slovakia. Okay. That's, I'll leave yeah, it at that. that. That is a great teaser, and we are absolutely going to have a follow-up to, to talk about all of that stuff. Because when, whenever you're talking about, like I said, my whole area of interest is the Cold War. That's what is my like main focus. Um, and we're talking about nuclear materials. Uh, we're talking about the early days of the development of um, the use of atomic materials. I mean, yeah, you got, you got my attention, sir. <laughs> Um, now, but okay. In the meantime, uh, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, just let people know, you know, um, best way to reach out to you. Really, the best way now is if I work on, unfortunately, the Facebook platform. You can message me on Facebook. Uh, my my face page is virtually our website, and the Marley Woods Ted Phyllis Marley Woods Research Center group page. You can become a member on that and all the latest pictures data is on that page and you can message me through that or my own personal page and it's virtually all Ted Phillips, Marley Woods and uh, data and what's going on there. Okay. Uh, is it okay with you if I put links in the show notes for people to reach out to you oh, directly? That'd be great. Okay. That'd be great. I'll do that. And I'll send you our little three-minute movie. Uh, did I send that to you? No, I haven't seen that. Three-minute that's on YouTube. I haven't. In, cases, in three minutes, that'll visually tell you, and it's set to music. Uh, all the participants in Marley, a lot of the the key fo photographs, Ted and the team, and uh, it's really, I think, three minutes will will mean a lot to you if you watch that. Yeah, and it's it's pretty interesting. I'll I'll check that out if you send that to me. Um, you can send it to me through the Facebook or uh, I will send you an email because you gave me your email address. I'll send you an email so you'll have my email and then okay. we can communicate via email also. Okay. Anyway, that's uh, that's a great way to for us to end this conversation and keep it open for another 
another time. Um, but uh, thank you for coming on and sharing your, your insights and your information with us. Is there anything else that you'd like to say before we close it out? No, that, that pretty much covers it all. I just, uh, just, all I'd say is keep your eyes and ears open and look towards the sky. <laughs> you won't see, experience anything. If you got your nose in your cell phone. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, Tom. Well, thanks again. I appreciate you taking the time to do this and I look forward to talking to you again. Okay. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Okay. Take care.